Hi, this is Steve. So, while John and I try to do a fair amount of research before each podcast, we always manage to get a few things wrong. The year a movie came out, the name of an actor, or some key piece of film trivia. Fortunately, our fellow cinephiles are always there to tell us when we've made a mistake. For instance, last week in our episode on Enter the Dragon, I made a bunch, including the fact that Bruce was 5'7", not 5'3". I don't know how I messed that one up. And the very sad news that the great Jim Kelly actually passed away in 2013. We really are grateful for all your corrections, and even happier when our podcast sparks important discussions like, who is really tougher, Bruce Lee or Chuck Norris? That was fun to watch you argue about that. Now, on to this week's show. The remake of one of our favorite films is coming to theaters in a few weeks, and we thought it would be a good time to take another look at the original. So, this week on The Cinephiles, John and I are going back to the Old West for the 1960 classic, The Magnificent Seven, starring Yul Brynner, Steve McQueen, Charles Bronson, James Colburn, Robert Vaughn, and Eli Wallach. That's the original Magnificent Seven, coming up next on The Cinephiles. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film, explore its themes, its history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I am a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roca. I'm a voiceover actor and a host of numerous shows here in Los Angeles. And today we are going back to 1960 to what I think is probably the last, the final classic Western. Ooh. Yeah, this is, this is, this is I wow. think, the tradition that begins in the silent era that goes through John Ford, goes through High Noon, which we talked about before. You're just going to start there. You're going to say that this film is the last classic. Wow. All right. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, because after this, we get into the spaghetti westerns. We get into Butch Cassidy. And none of those into... are classics to you. No, no. They're, I'm not saying they're not classics. Oh. I'm saying the genre, that, that those are the anti-hero westerns. Oh, I see There's what you're the, saying. The, the death of yes. the West. There's yes. the, the, you know, this is the last of that, you know, the rollicking hero, black hat, white hat, yeah. Western. It's ironic. You know? All right, let's do it. Because um. <laughs> Yul Brenner wears a black hat all through this movie. Well, this is black, ironic. Well, black hat, white hat refers to <laughs> good guys and bad guys. Yes. As opposed to, you know, the Unforgiven, where yeah. we have complicated guys. Or Wild Bunch, yeah. Or Wild Bunch, yeah. Um, so, John, how did you first come to this film? Uh, I think I came to this film, um, like most people, like it was on TV. I watched it on TV. I remember watching it with my dad some afternoon, and it was the score that got me. The score dun, is dun, so amazing. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. yeah, it's just so uplifting, you know, Elmer Bernstein's score. And I remember that that always stuck with me. And Yul Brenner uh, as, as a lead, it wasn't something you saw so as a Latino kid growing up. Not that Yul Brenner's Latino, but you see someone that's not white, that's a lead of a film. It was so fantastic, and I just loved all the characters. Like the characters were so well done, and obviously I saw this before I ever saw Seven Samurai, which is it's a remake sure. of Seven Sam Kurosawa Seven Samurai. So for me, it was so much fun. I've always loved the Western genre since I was a child, and so when I saw this film the first time, I just remember being transfixed by everyone in it. What happens? Eli Wallach coming in, you know, as a kind of a complicated, interesting villain that you didn't usually yeah. see, and so there was a lot about the film that. I really enjoyed it took kind of it's funny you say that because it took kind of the classic western ideas and still kind of 
added or fleshed them out a little bit more than you anticipated. Yeah, it's funny. This is one of those movies I have no idea when I first saw it. Oh, okay. No clue. I, I, yeah. It's a movie that always existed. Yeah. And it's one where, you know, because, you know, we live in this world now where all media is available all the time. Right. Movies were when they came on TV. Yeah. I have no, me- I don't think I saw the beginning of this movie for years, oh, probably wow. until college, <laughs> because I just came in in the middle yeah. and I met these gunslingers. But the whole thing, in the, which starts in the village, mm-hmm. uh, I don't remember. Yeah. And for me, I think I said when we talked about High Noon, that my dad is a huge Western fan. And that's where I saw High Noon was through yeah. my dad. This was my favorite Western. Yeah. Because this Western is fun. Yeah. This is a really, really fun movie it's not uh intellectual in the way that high noon is it's not sweeping and you know uh internal the way like the searchers are yeah this is like we have some heroes and they're cool this movie is the ultimate and cool i think and we're going off to get the bad guys and i so i've i don't know how many times i've watched it and i probably watched pieces of it over and over again i've certainly seen it more than i've seen seven samurai yeah and i certainly saw it long before i saw seven samurai Mm -hmm. and it's interesting so so i think this is one of our most interesting i don't know if we call if i would call it a remake maybe it's an adaptation i would say adaptation's a better uh, um, and so it's one of the questions because we have a we have a new seven samurai or new magnificent seven coming up yeah uh it's uh Antoine Fuqua. Yeah. Uh, and, and I've seen the trailer. Yeah. And I, and I was curious to ask, when do you think it's appropriate to remake or adapt a film? Because oh. I've been struggling with this for a while. Right. And trying to come up with what are the rules. And I have some thoughts. I don't know if there are rules, man. I mean, it's the thing is, whatever you personally think, someone around the corner could be like, no, whenever you're ready to remake it, remake it. Why not? If people like it, do it. To me, this is one of those ones that doesn't need to be remade. They did it as a TV series, you know, for for about two years on CBS. Uh, and they did installments of it, you know, Magnificent Seven, Right Again, right. The Guns of the Magnificent Seven, you know, all those, of which are not very good. Yeah, yeah, no, but they're yeah. enjoyable to watch because sure. of the genre of the because of what it, what they are, George Kennedy, what have you. But like it, to me, it, this is this is all depends on your personal flavor. Like for me, Citizen Kane can never be remade, but they're remaking Clue. Okay, doesn't bother me. They remade Ghostbusters, didn't bother me. But this film. What about Seven Samurai? I, Seven, no, I think you can't remake Seven. But you Samurai. can do Magnificent Seven. Yes, because it's an adaptation, and so it's already a knockoff as it is. So if you want to remake the knockoff, that's fine with me. I'm not bothered by it. Just do a good job. And so, I'm a little worried because I don't know the trailer. To me, Peter Sarsgaard is a great actor. I I, I don't necessarily see him as an uh, you know uh, unbeatable villain with the personality that Eli Wallach had. Well, Eli Wallach's a lot, a lot. We're yeah. going to get into Eli yeah. because that is that's fascinating casting. He's Eli awesome. Wallach. Yeah. Um, so I mean, it's interesting to hear you say that as a Latino man because I know some, sometimes your your feeling is why are you casting a non Latino to play this part? But he already was a non Latino. Eli Wallach's a Jewish guy from New York. He so was the, not Latino. Well, no, no, that's what I yeah. mean, is that your objection is... I, oh, yeah, but Eli Wallach is like an honorary Latino. Like, he did such a good job <laughs> okay. doing Calvera and also in Good, the Bad, and the Ugly that oh, yeah. everyone embraced... Like, the whole Latino culture embraces Eli Wallach as a Latino. As a, as a Jewish person, I feel a little warm by that embrace. Like, <laughs> I feel true. like maybe I get a little bit of that, too. <laughs> sure, why um, not? Uh, well, the, actually, this relates in a weird way to what I was thinking about remakes and adaptations yeah. is that if you do it good, it's okay. Yes, if you do it bad, you're going to be in deep trouble. Yes. You know, is that, so first of all, 
there are, I, I think you've got to separate it into high concept and low concept. And for those people who don't know these terms, they're like kind of Hollywoody terms. Yeah. A high concept movie is a movie that I can explain to you in 10 seconds. Yeah. So a shark is attacking people off the coast of this island. We've got to fight him. Mm-hmm. Got it. I get it. The devil has taken over this little girl's body. Ah, I got it. Yeah. Okay, that's high concept. Low concept is it's a bunch of people in a house and they're dealing with their relationships. Right. It's like, well, I don't know. That could be a lot of things. Yeah. So high concept movies are easier to uh, adapt or remake. Mm-hmm. So like Ghostbusters is comedians fighting ghosts. Yeah. Okay. I get it. And you could do a lot of different stuff with that and it would be okay. Yeah. Um, where Citizen Kane is Citizen Kane. It, it, and you would always just try and be trying to copy the original. Yeah. And the thing, like Seven Samurai, because what I will say is I love Magnificent Seven. Yeah. But Seven Samurai is a great film yeah. in a way that Magnificent Seven isn't. Mm-hmm. But Seven Samurai is also high concept. Yes. Which is, we're going to take seven people and they're going to protect this town. They're going to protect uh, poor people from bad guys. Yeah. And you could do Seven Samurai in space. Yes, you could. And you have Bugs Life, which is essentially yeah. Seven Samurai, yeah. you know, but it's a c- comedy and the, the heroes are twisted because, well, yeah. you know, but it's still Seven Samurai structure. What's that film from the 80s, Battle Beyond the Stars? Battle Beyond the Stars. That's a Seven Samurai. You're right. You're right. Yeah. You're right. And so, like, saying we're going to take that concept and we're going to transport it to another place. Yeah. And very wisely, when they go to do Magnificent Seven, they didn't try to be deep yeah. in the way that Seven Samurai is deep. Right. And, and so a little history on the... So Seven Samurai comes out in 1954. It's a, arguably Akira Kurosawa's masterpiece. Mm-hmm. It is a... We're going to do it on the cinephiles. Yeah. We're, we're not do, we, we, we kind of debated doing it before we do Magnificent Seven. And maybe we should have, but I, I needed more time. We need more time. We've got to prep for it and yeah. really, because it's a serious film. Yeah. But it, it sweeps the world. I think it wins. Seven Samurai wins. I think the Venice Grand Prize. And it, uh, it comes to the U.S. and immediately everyone's talking about yeah. it. And including James Colburn, who says he saw it 12 times in the theater. Wow. Um, and Yul Brynner, who, who says, this is just a little weird about what really happened. Yeah. But he said he called his lawyer buddy in Tokyo and said, buy the rights and bought the rights to Seven Samurai for $250. Wow. Right after the movie came out. But another guy, uh, the producer whose name is Monheim, I think, okay. says that he's the one who bought the rights. <laughs> and I can't figure out which one is which. Well, which one is saying, telling the truth? There's always drama around Brenner. There's always drama around Brenner. So who knows? Yeah. He's a fascinating guy. In so many ways. The fact that he gets to be the king of Siam yeah. and play this great cowboy figure. Yeah. I, I, I don't know how that happens. <laughs> Will you buy guns for us? Guns are very expensive and hard to get. Why don't you hire men? Men? Gunmen. Nowadays, men are cheaper than guns. Would you go? It will be a blessing if you came to help us. Sorry, I'm not in the blessing business. No, no, we offer more than that. We could feed you every day. And we have this. What's that? Everything we own. Everything of value in the village. I've been offered a lot for my work. But never everything. So, because originally, Yul Brynner was going to direct it. Oh, wow. Yeah, that was sort of the one of the plans. And then uh, they uh, that doesn't really happen. They bring yeah. in John Sturgis. John Sturgis started as an editor, had a long history uh, in Hollywood, sort of making his way forward. Yeah. And uh, he comes along to direct it, but with Yul Brynner attached to Star. Yeah. And then the question is, who are these other guys going to be? And this is some great casting. A um, bunch of open covers. All, yeah. Yeah. Steve McQueen's on a TV show at the time. Yeah. And you know how Steve you know how Steve McQueen got on the movie? No. So 
he wanted to do the movie. He wanted to get out of this contract of, on his TV show. Yeah. So he crashed his car to injure himself. And he has his girlfriend or his wife in the car. And he yeah. says, listen, I'm going to crash the car. There are no seatbelts or anything. So he, he says, I'm wow. going to fake crashing the car is what he says. But then he actually crashes the car mm. so that his head is bleeding. And that's how he got out of his contract on the TV show so he could go make Magnificent Seven. Well, shouldn't tempt fate. Yeah, that seems like a bad... I mean, to be clear, Steve McQueen did become a professional-level race car driver. Yes, but he also had numerous car accidents. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, if if Steve McQueen were around and said, hey, let's, I guess you got a new fast car. You want to take a ride with me? Yeah, I'm, I'm like, good. No, no, thanks, Steve. You're good. Yeah, I'm good. Yeah. It's, let's talk about Steve McQueen a little bit. Sure. I don't know who the most charismatic actor in the history of film is, but McQueen is on the list. Yeah. He does more with less than almost any actor I can think of. I would say he rivals Brando in uh, watchability. Like, you can't take your eyes off. Oh, yeah. Because you don't know what's gonna, what he's going to do next. And it's not, his, not the intensity of it. It's the, he plays it under, he underplays everything oh, yeah. in a way that you subtly cannot tell that he is stealing the scene until afterwards. Well, and, and it became a he real... He pickpockets the scene is what he does. Yeah, it, it, yeah. it's exactly what he does. Yul Brenner hated him because he keeps upstaging him. Yeah. And if you watch and you can't not watch yeah. every scene, Steve McQueen's doing something in the background. <laughs> That's true. Like they get at the very beginning, Yul Brenner and Steve McQueen meet because uh, someone wants to bury a, uh, a, a Native American yeah. in Blue Hill. Yeah. And so so, but and and the town doesn't want it, and they're going to try to kill the people if they bring this hearse up to the cemetery. Right. And strange bald gunslinger Yul Brenner and strange good looking gunslinger Steve McQueen, not that Yul Brenner's not good looking, right. volunteer to uh, take the hearse up. Yeah. And have this great, great little gunfight scene. Aren't they friends with one of the people who is coming up? With the nurse? No, they're no, just the strangers. Knows, going. Yeah. No, they're strangers. They right. don't know. They, they're just like. And they're not paid to do this. Nope. Not, okay. They just go, I'll do it. Or get somebody else. There isn't anybody else who'll drive it. So here. Oh, hell. Without someone that's holding things up, I'll drive the rig. Can I borrow that scattergun? No. You're more than welcome. Hey, now wait a minute there. Listen, now this hearse cost me $840 in Denver. It's the only one in the county. I'll be darned if I'm going to turn it over to strangers to be shot at. I'll pay for the damages. I want to see this. Me too. Never rode shotgun on a hearse before. And then you see they get on the hearse, <laughs> and, Steve, and as... You know, Yul Brenner is talking. Steve McQueen in the background is shaking the shotgun shells and then loading them in the shotgun. <laughs> I don't know that you need to shake shotgun no, shells. I don't to, know. It's just this weird. But you're like, that is fascinating. <laughs> of course it is. And, and one of the things that's really good in this movie is there is some attention paid to how these guys are good gunslingers. Yeah. Like, what is it? What do they do that's so good? Mm -hmm. You know, and and that they have that they that they're professionals. And there's an unspoken. Since we're professionals, we understand each other, and we know how to do what we're doing. And yeah. you know how you obviously you're going to do this. That's yeah. really fun to watch. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Steve McQueen throughout the whole, and he doesn't have a lot of lines. Well, Eli Wallach talked about this in his biography. How he said uh, Steve, he felt that Steve was always trying to upstage yeah. uh, Yule, and that he like Yule to get back at him would like constantly step on mounds of dirt so that he would look taller than Steve <laughs> McQueen. His little games that played throughout, and apparently Steve McQueen. Uh, when he was dying of cancer, reached out to Yule to apologize for it. Really? And said to him, uh, thank you for not throwing me off the film, because you could have thrown off me off the film, uh, for doing that kind of crap. And that film made me. 
And right. I appreciate oh, you not like, because you were the bigger star. Yeah. I appreciate you not like kicking me out. And you'll said to him, well, I am the king, but you <laughs> are the feisty prince and no less dangerous. And that was like a great response, <laughs> wow, you know, and they, cool. it, but McQueen says that I had to make, I had to make up with him because he was very gracious to let me be on the phone. And you lure, you realize that as you get older as an actor in Hollywood, because then you become the Yul Brenner part and you see you the hope. young and up and coming kid always. Yeah. Well, and it, oh, it, you it, hope it, you do at least. Yeah. yeah. It's funny, like, in hearing stories about this movie set, though, you know what movie it reminded me of? What's that? Is Predator. Oh, was there all crap going on between them, because, too? Well, well, oh, yeah, Jesse and Jesse and Arnold had a thing. Pre- That's right. And, pre- and on Predator, what you hear is that all these guys start lifting weights. And, they're, you know, first Arnold is in for an hour every morning. And then, you know, Jesse comes in for an hour and a half. So Arnold comes in for two hours. And then, you know, Carl Weathers comes in longer. And there's this huge macho competition <laughs> between the actors. And it feels like this was there, too, was that yeah. you have these, you know, these young Turks, all, yeah. all up and comers who are just like, gonna, I'm going to steal my scene. I'm going to make this scene. And they're all, man, I mean, you want to match charisma between Colburn and Yul Brynner and Steve McQueen yeah. and Robert Vaughn who I adore. In yeah. This movie. Robert Vaughn is so great in the movie. And Robert Vaughn, he's barely in it. Yeah. You know, and each of them, that's one of the things. It's a s- extremely efficient screenplay. Right. Steve McQueen apparently gave away lines. Wow. He said, I don't want to have, give me less lines. Yeah. Because, but every time he talks, every time he talks is a great moment. Yeah. Because he's doing all these other things that are essentially lines. So all these undercutting things that he's doing are essentially lines that he's yeah. doing. Yeah. 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 Like Eli Wallach or, 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 or one of the farmers I think says, well, how's it going so far? And, and Steve McQueen says, reminds me of that fellow back home and fell off a 10 story building. Hold about him. Well, he was falling people on each floor. Kept hearing him say so far, so good. So far, so good. Okay. <laughs> Which, by the way, is a lot of the way you feel as you're making a movie. I'm sure. So far, so good. <laughs> um, but it's it's a, it's such a great film, too, um, uh, Steve, because you have, like you said, James Coburn, Robert Vaughn. But you have Charles Bronson. Bronson, man. He's so great. Charles Bronson was like one of my favorite bar none actors in anything. So good. And this was so good, too, about the film, which is why it always connected with me. Eli Wallach is fantastic as Calvera, and Calvera has levels to him because Calvera isn't your typical bad guy. He has to feed this posse that he's created. Yes, he's a bad guy, he's a villain, but he has to feed these people that have eaten for three days. You hear that? We're trapped! All 40 of us, by these three. Or is it four? They couldn't afford to hire more than that. We come cheaper by the bunch. Five! Even five wouldn't give us too much trouble. There won't be any trouble if you ride on. Ride on? I'm going to hills for the winter. Where am I going to get the food for my men? Buy it or grow it. Or maybe even work for it. Seven. Somehow I don't think you've solved my problem. Solving your problems isn't our line. We deal in lead, friend. So do I. We're in the same business, huh? Only as competitors. Why not as partners? Suppose I offer you equal shares. In what? Everything, to the last grain. And the people in the village? What about them? I leave it to you. Can men of our profession worry about things like that? May even be sacrilegious. If God didn't want them sheared, he would not have made them sheep. Yeah. So it isn't like 
He's just stealing to sit on hordes of gold. He's stealing to live, you know? And so in a way, it's not, it's, uh, you have a small level of a little more of a rounder villain than twirling mustache type villain that you like Billy Zane in Titanic. And then you have J- uh, Charles Bronson having these connections with these kids. The kids it, yeah. and, and you have this feeling that he, because he is half Latino as well, or he says he's half Mexican in the film. And then also Horst Buchholz as the young, uh, isn't he, that, isn't that the yeah. young, young, who is a German guy playing, who is right. playing what, he used to be a Mexican farmer or whatever. He's supposed to believe that he was a Mexican farmer. Uh, but you, there's, there's enough homage, there's enough respect paid to the Latino uh, sections of this film that I always revered it to my dad, which is why we watched it together. I remember sure. us watching it together. Well, a yeah. couple, couple things about this. So first of all, casting. Yeah. Is that, is that good casting is not one-to-one. And that's what people often think yeah. that it is. It's like, ah, oh, this part, I need a tall blonde woman. So I will look for tall blonde women. Right. Not necessarily. You know, I need a young Latino guy to play this young Latino guy. Maybe not necessarily. Right. I need a Mexican bandit. I'm going to get the Eastern European heritage New York <laughs> Jew from... The, he's full, like... Eli Wallach, he's like the full method guy. Yeah, he is. He is. Yeah, he is. You know, actor studio. Yeah. I mean, he's, you know, trained with, you know, Strasbourg and all that. That's who he is. Yeah. And, and, and he didn't even read for the part. Sturgis offered him the part. Wow. He said, I want you to play this guy. Uh, Eli Wallach's first reaction was, well, I've seen Seven Samurai. The bandit, the head bandit in Seven Samurai doesn't have any lines. Yeah. I don't want to play that. And then, and then he looked at the script and said, oh, I do get lines. I get lines at the beginning, and then I get lines, a few lines throughout. Yeah. And then what finally made him do it, which I love, this is a great actor response. He said, well, I'm not on screen for a long time. But when I'm not on screen, all everybody's talking about it's is me. me. Yeah, that's true. Therefore, this is a good part. Yeah. And his, I won't say, <coughs> I sort of, I, I, I disagree with you a little in the sense that he's sympathetic because he's a good guy. Well, I'm saying he's a good well, guy. I know, I know you're not saying he's, he's a good guy. He's a more guy. well-rounded villain. Yeah, he's well, but what is that, what's cool about him is he's interesting. Yes. He is an interesting guy. Yeah. And he's much closer, like one of the dynamics that are set up in a way in the movie is that you have the peasants and the peasants are boring yes. simple there's not a lot of personality to them and then you have our gunslingers and they are filled with personality yeah and that eli wallach is really closer to the gunslingers he is this interesting complicated yes. smart uh he has he's got a sense of humor he's got all this stuff and he's cool too on a certain level like you he is a yeah. likable guy even though he's a bad guy right. and that he thinks that he actually connects with yul brenner and the gunslingers yeah and i don't know how you feel so so the story, let me back up just a little bit. I'm sure you all kind of know the story. The band of bandits are, are attacking this town. Town takes all the money they have and goes out to get gunslingers to protect them. Interesting thing about that, by the way. Yeah. There had been a movie that had shot previously in Mexico, and it really demeaned Mexicans. Ah. And so the Mexican government was like pissed off of course. about it. And they almost didn't get to go shoot the movie in Mexico. And originally in the script it said, the, the farmers talked to the old man and said, Go get gunslingers and bring them back here. And the Mexican government censored that. Ooh. And they said, no, because it makes Mexicans look too weak. Oh. Is that, and so what they changed, it's a very small change of the script. Now they say, go, go buy guns. Ah. So, they say, so they go to Yul Brynner and say, we, can you help us buy guns? And Yul Brynner says, why don't you just get gunslingers? They're cheaper than guns. <laughs> and, that, and, the, and the Mexican government said... That's cool. And that we can we can accept that. We're fine. With that. <laughs> I don't know if it really makes a difference, but it's interesting the yeah. things you have to go through to get your movie made. Of course. So they they bring these gunslingers down. The gunslingers help train them to defend the town. Yeah. Um. And 
And that's one of the big differences, by the way, between this and Seven Samurai. Seven Samurai spends a lot of de- time and detail yes. with prepping the town. Well, this was a three-hour movie. Yeah, and this movie really doesn't. No. Um, and, uh, and then they fight off Calvera and his men the first time. Some other stuff happens. And then they're betrayed, and Calvera takes over the town. Yeah. Also something that does not happen in Seven Samurai. Yes. It's very different. We have a saying here. A thief who steals from a thief... He's pardoned for 100 years. All right, what does that leave? Only one thing. I pardon you. Just like that. You want food? Give them food. Water? All right, water. Horses? Saddled and waiting. Guns? The guns, the gun belts you take off and put here now. What about these people? What happens to these people will happen to them whether I kill you first or not. Just a little gesture, huh? Show these people who the real boss is. You go, then I give you the guns back. I know you won't use those guns against me. Only a crazy man makes the same mistake twice. And then they decide to go back and kill Calvera. That's the hero moment. The hero moment for me isn't the defending of the town. The defending of the town, there's still somewhat getting paid. There's still like, there's a morality to it. But the moment for me, when they turn around and go back, when they don't have to, when there's nothing in it, is the hero moment for me. And it's why, one of the main reasons I love this film. They don't have to do it. The the moment of turning back, because one of my favorite ones of that is Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Bruce Willis. Oh, yeah. Deciding to turn back. Yes. That is a hero moment. Yeah, it is. And you're absolutely right. What's weird to me about this one, and I love it. It's yeah. great. But what's weird to me about this one is it's this weird sort of betrayal of Calvera. He didn't have to give them their guns back. Right. He says, look, just go out of town. And he, he kind of makes a deal with them. And then they take their guns back and go and kill him. Right. And I'm not saying they're wrong to do why it. Why did I, you come back? Yeah. It's yeah, like, yeah. why? Yeah, I'm not saying they're wrong to do it, but it is a weird violation of some kind of code but calvera's but it's calvera's mistake because if he is if he knows them to be contemporaries in essence right. they're the same type of people right then he should have known in his position he would have done the same thing because out of pride he'd have gone back well, except that whereas he would, they go back at a hero he moment would. i don't think he would go back i think they're you not think the same pe- oh, okay. kind of people i think if calvera got beat by anybody he would go back to try to win that's not my it's a pride thing i think he would go that's not pr- i think calvera is practical I think you'd go, that's not practical. Why you would I risk my life? No offense, man. You don't understand Latino. Latino will go back. I understand Jews, though. <laughs> yes, but he's not a Jew in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> like Eastern European Jews, those are my people. Yes, We're very practical. Respect, respect. But I'm telling you, a Latino, if he gets beat and you leave, if you let him leave and you give him back his gun, he's going to come back to he's try to win. Come back. Yeah, he's got to win. He's uh, got to win. It is a great moment in the movie. <laughs> it really is. Um, I, it's a good question. So I want, I want to do our first uh, cinephile's survey <laughs> do you think had the roles been reversed that yeah. calvera would have come back would, he wouldn't have gone back right not to save the town he'd have gone back to kill, to kill those to people kill them because that's more like a pride thing yeah, yeah that's what they're I not going back to kill calvera no they're no going back to save the town right john i can't tell you how excited i am about the cinephiles new sponsor an absolutely incredible game marvel strike force now anyone who's listened to the show knows that i've been reading comic books since i was five years old and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true you could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite marvel characters i mean everyone is there the punisher vision black panther cap 
or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. Um, so let's go, let's go through our characters cause they're okay. so great. And, and there's just so many, so many great lines. Yeah. Uh, like one of them is, is Steve McQueen looking for work in the town yeah. and he says, well, there's a, you know, a bagger at the, you know, a clerk at the grocery store or a, or, a, you know, a bartender or something like that, yeah. but I'm not going to go do that. And then he loses all his money and then he is going to go do that. And the farmer, uh, comes back Oh well, that's really good, steady work. And you have yeah. this great moment with steve mcqueen just sitting there going okay i'm in you know you have and one of the things this movie has and i don't know if there's movie a lot of movies that do this in this way before this we've certainly seen a lot of movies that do this since which is the gathering of the team yeah seven samurai does it yeah and we spend it's about 40 40 minutes of gathering the team Mm -hmm. and each getting each one of their personalities yeah for instance we go and we find charles bronson Chopping wood. Chopping wood, which is the same as Seven Samurai. Yep. His character is slightly different, but it's a similar parallel. And he's talking. He, Charles Bronson's a big dude. Yeah. And he feels like a big dude. Yeah. You know, he has that sense of physical power. Yeah. And he's talking about how much money he got paid for doing each of these jobs. And they're saying, yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot. How much does this job pay? Uh, and they say $20. $20 a week? <laughs> $20 for the whole thing. And... They walk away, and then Charles Bronson says, $20? Right now, yeah, that's, that's a lot. lot. Yeah. <laughs> and this is great like great line. screenwriting, because yeah. they all get these great lines. Yeah. You have the introdu- introduction of James Colburn, and this oh, one, man. Uh, this one's fraught to me, because it is the parallel to the swordsman yeah. in Seven Samurai. Yep. One of the great, great moments in all of Kurosawa yeah. films. And you know that they're sitting there going, how are we going to do it? What are we going to do? And they have a great scene, yeah. which is Colburn, the rumor goes that he thinks he can throw a knife faster than someone can draw a gun right and it's exactly the swordsman scene in its own way yeah and again colburn barely has any lines in the whole movie right and yet his presence his silent presence is so big it's powerful for an actor really cool yeah yeah and i love the whole convention of it all because the idea is he doesn't he's a reluctant participant in the in this situation like he doesn't want to fight this guy because he knows he's faster than this guy he but he's forced to because the guy won't let up and the guy keeps shooting around him to force him to get up he's like all right this is what you want but because and also he also knows and this is something i bring to it myself personally if he gets involved in this and he wins he's losing his job oh yeah yeah and so and and has probably has to leave the town and, and, and that's the thing and i think he's had this scenario happen before yeah just from the way he's doing it it feels like something he's done before absolutely there's yeah. a real and it does parallel the seven samurai yeah. one it's a real reluctance like uh 
Yeah. Now I have to do this. Yep. And then you have, again, the great setup of his character. They, they approach him off screen, so we yeah. don't get to see the scene. And then, he, and then Yul Brynner's explaining to the farmers why he didn't do it. And the farmers go, well, is the money not enough? He's like, this guy's not interested in money. Yeah. He, he, he's here for the competition. And the farmer says, well, if he's so good with a knife and a gun, if he's the best with a knife and a gun, who does he compete against? And I think it's McQueen who says himself. Yeah. And now we've like, that's, again, we've within a couple of lines encapsulated a character. Yeah. And go, okay, I'm in. I'm in with this guy. Yeah. Then you get Robert Vaughn. And Robert Vaughn, man, that performance, it's almost, he's almost in another movie. Almost. Almost. He walks that line so yeah. carefully. You're right. Yeah. And, 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 and he's sitting in the back room and he has that drawl. Yeah. And, and they go, oh, I thought you were after the something boys. And he goes, yeah. I found him, <laughs> you know, and, and it's just like, whoa, this, and he's very much dressed as sort of a dandy. He looks like a dandy. I was just yeah. going to say, he looks just like a dandy with his leather gloves a and a little everything. Southern. Yeah. It's a little, you know what it is? It's a little, um, Val Kilmer as oh, yeah. Doc Holliday. I could see that. It's a little of that sort of Southern yeah. dandy kind of guy. Yeah. And he ends up taking the job because you find out he's on the run yeah. and then you see him not shoot a gun no. for most of the film. And at first, you know, and, and, and Steve McQueen did sort of a shaky hand gesture about him we're keep going like what's up with robert vaughn what's the yeah. deal and then you start to realize he's scared yeah that he's lost his nerve he's ptsd he has ptsd right yeah. which isn't wasn't a term back then no but he has ptsd and 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 there's this unbelievable scene where he wakes up screaming yeah. well first he has the the scene where they the great scene of the gunslingers talking about why to be a gunslinger you think it's worth it don't you it's only a matter of knowing how to shoot a gun nothing big about that how can you talk like this? Your gun has got you everything you have. Isn't that true? Hmm? Well, isn't it true? Yeah, sure, everything. After a while, you can call bartenders and ferro dealers by their first name. Maybe 200 of them. Rented rooms you live in, 500. Meals you eat in hash houses, a thousand. Home, none. Wife, none. Kids, none. Prospects, zero. Suppose I left anything out? Yeah. Places you're tied down to, none. People with a hold on you, none. Men you step aside for, none. Insults swallowed, none. Enemies, none. No enemies? Alive. Yeah. And then later on, we see him wake up screaming yeah. in the most human and terrified and uh, vulnerable way. Yeah. Like, really good. And and we realize this is all a lie. All yeah. this bravado has been a lie. And my favorite moment, he sees three flies in front of him on the table, reaches and grabs them, cut to in, in extreme close-up of a hand with a fly in it. And he says, there was a time I would have caught all three. <laughs> That's a great character. It is. And we then we get the completion of his arc. And then yeah. and there's a moment where they do he chooses to come back. Yep. Which is surprising because he's the most frightened. Yeah. And then he gets to a point where he has to go fight them. He has his gun out in his hand. He puts his gun back in his holster so that he make to make it harder on himself. And then yeah. he goes in with this really badass gunslinger moment. And you go, wow, he's completed himself, and then he gets killed. Yeah. <laughs> Perfectly so. Yeah. Because his arc is done. It's perfectly so. His arc is finished, and it's a perfect end. Like everybody who dies in the film, to me, dies in the right way to complete the arc of the character. Yeah. Uh, in, in Coburn with the knife, 
throwing the knife before he dies, which you could argue is cheesy if it wasn't Colburn. If it wasn't Colburn, I still think he makes it work. And Bronson's death, saving little boys, but oh, yeah. it's it's his sacrifice, but it's because he's hit this point in his life where like all the money that he was making before, he's kind of you know pissed it all away or done whatever with it, and now this is what he's doing. And so his death, is it's almost better that he dies here now in a noble cause than to keep going through this thing of having to cut wood to just to exist, just to be able to afford breakfast. Well, you know, it's and I think he, he, I think he's come to this realization about life, and it's so beautifully done. Yeah, it's the moment. So the little kids come and like, we're here to protect you, and to, we'll put flowers on your grave if you die. And it's all very cute, yeah. a little weird. And then one of the kids calls his dad a coward. Yes, his, and, her, his own father a coward. Yeah. And, and Bronson grabs the kid, spanks him, and then says, "Don't you ever say that again about your fathers, because they are not cowards. You think I am brave because I carry a gun." Well, your fathers are much braver because they carry responsibility for you, your brothers, your sisters, and your mothers. And this responsibility is like a big rock that weighs a ton. It bends and it twists them until finally it buries them under the ground. And as nobody says they have to do this, they do it because they love you and because they want to. I have never had this kind of courage. And... There's no question in my mind that that's sincere yeah. from him and that he's learning. I think he's learning that in this movie. He's going, oh, I've done all these things, yeah. but I've never had the courage. This is what I really want. Yeah. I think he's the guy that would have stayed in the village right. if, 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 if he had oh, survived absolutely. the movie. Absolutely. Is that he goes, oh, this is what life's about. It's these kids and, and not, yeah. not about all these other things. Yeah. And then he dies really bravely and sadly. I mean, yeah. it's really sad. It is. I mean, the, the fact that you have... I mean, I don't really care about Brad Dexter. I feel bad. You know, it's funny. You have, yeah. you got to have a weak link in yeah. Seven Samurai, or The Magnificent Seven. Yeah. And he's kind of the weak link. Yeah. Not that he's a bad actor. No. He's but he goes, he goes after, he thinks it's, there's gold in the hills or whatever. And Chris gives him his character arc again. Gives him, when he's dying, he says, yeah, there was gold. You're right. Yeah. There was gold. Which Brad, you never, you, never under, you never really believed that Brad believed that. He just needed to hear it before he died. Yeah. For his own thing. It's a good, right? I, I, think, I think the, pro, the problem with him is that he's not James Colburn, Steve McQueen, or Robert Vaughn. Sure. Is that you have these three guys who are just blowing the doors off the movie. Yeah. And then you have this perfectly good actor. Mm-hmm. And his story arc is that he says, oh, there's gold. And Chris goes, no, there's there's not gold. Yeah. He goes, oh, so okay, there's silver. He's like, no, there's not. And he goes, okay, I got you. And he's like, don't understand me so quickly. <laughs> we, you know, the guy's kind of an idiot. Yeah. Well, yes and no, because I think he fools himself. I think he wants yeah. to be part of this. But I also think Brad Dexter is an actor. He understood. Like, I can't hang with these guys. No. I'm just going to do a serviceable job, not to pull attention away from them. I get my character hero moment of riding back into the town when I've left them initially when they turn back to go back and save the town. I do die trying to do that, but I save Chris's life. Okay, great. Um, you know what a great story, uh, and I don't, it's a rumored story, and I don't know if it's 100% true, but he apparently said, him and Sinatra were friends for a long time. Yeah. Have you heard this story before? Yeah. And he apparently saved Sinatra while he was drowning. Yeah. But Sinatra initially was very thankful to him, but then eventually was embarrassed that he saw him in such a weakened position and ended the friendship with Brad Dexter. Oh, I didn't know that part. Little, I knew yeah. the first part of the story. <clears throat> yeah, he, if, apparently he was very uh, embarrassed that he he was crying and had been like so close to death and that Brad had seen him at his most vulnerable moment and he would never have that respect from Brad that he had from other people. And so he ended up ending the friendship because he didn't want to have that kind of... And Brad graciously accepted that, accepted the end of the friendship because of that. You know? he, he apparently went on to be a producer, which yes. I don't know a lot about what he produced. Yeah. So, and then let's get to uh, the kid. Yes. Our German, Latino, <laughs> Mexican farmer gunslinger. Sure. 
Um, I, I like him in the movie. It, sure. It's interesting. Like, you go, okay, here's this great film, Seven Samurai. And you're going to take this iconic film. Um, yep. It seems to me they kind of took two characters and sort of combined them a little bit. Part of their decision was, I th- think they went, we can't do Toshiro Mifune. Yes. You know what I mean? Can't Toshiro Mifune and Seven Samurai's performances. Yeah. Not only is it a fantastic performance, but it is what it is. Mm-hmm. Like, there's no, you can't imitate that. You can't, that no. is just Toshiro Mifune and Seven Samurai. Because he plays the guy who was the farmer pretending to be a samurai. <clears throat> yeah. Who's kind of crazy. Yeah. And becomes sort of the core of the group in this strange emotional way that's hard to define. Right. And then there's also the kid who's going to find the girl and fall in love in Seven Samurai. Yeah. But he's sort of the wealthiest, highest level, highest status person. Yeah. And so I think what they did was they, they kind of went, well, let's have a kid. But let's have the kid be the farmer the way that Tashir Mafuni was the farmer. Yeah. Let's give some crazy to Robert Vaughn. You know, yeah. and let's kind of mix these traits up and we have to define new characters, yeah. which I think, you know, going back to when is it OK to remake or adapt a movie? This is where it seems like it's OK. Don't try to imitate the things that are fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. particularly the unique human ones like they do a good job with the swordsman to James Colburn. Right. But they don't try to imitate to Mafuni. Yeah. You know, and, and also the character of the general. Yul Brynner is clearly the leader, but he's not that general. Right. He's not uh, Takashi Shimura. Yeah, Takashi Shimura, Shimura, yeah. Yeah. I think the horse does a really good job. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I like him quite a bit. Well, just the same thing. Like, uh, although he's friends or friendly, like Steve McQueen is friendly with uh, Yul Brynner in the film, they don't have that decades-long friendship that you sense from Shimura and the bald, yeah. kind of heavyset guy that is his best friend in the film yeah. and his his confidant that Steve McQueen is supposedly representing. Yeah. So you're yeah. right. With Buchholz, they combine those two characters, Mifune and... Which is interesting because they still get to seven. Because right. I don't know if there's a Brad Dexter comparison in the Seven Samurai that's going after the gold or whatever. No. Yeah. So that's where they get away with that. Because that's a very American guy to throw in there, which yeah. I thought was perfect. Well, and, and this goes back to what's, why it's high concept. You have seven interesting characters. Right. And how we define those seven interesting characters, we could do it a lot of different ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, because Steve McQueen doesn't... He doesn't fit like with those other characters no he's uh, he's in essence he has mafuni stuff in his behavior oh, as yeah. well i see that with you you actually make a great point with horse bookholz but i think there's some of the mafuni stuff in mcqueen as well because historically mafuni is the one that broke out of seven samurai to be the star mcqueen broke out of magnificent seven to be the star so yeah. you know so to me there's comparisons and correlations there as well yeah, that's true. That's a good point. Well, and, you know, again, you get in this issue, this weird thing. We've not talked about it a few times. We talked about it with Bruce Lee. Yeah. We talked about it with Orson Welles. Is this thing of charisma. Yeah. Of what is it that makes certain actors ones that you have to look at? Yeah. And Steve McQueen, man, he's just a really interesting person. Those eyes, man. Um, it's interesting, too, that Horst decides to stay in the town. Yeah. I don't know that I... I mean, I, I totally buy it with the, the, the way the movie's constructed. Right. But the, everything we know about him is he wants to be a gunslinger. Yeah. So it's always I, I kind of want him to grab the girl and say, let's go. Yeah. Not stay in the town. To me, it reminds me a lot of the kid in, uh, in Unforgiven. Mm. Until he actually experiences what a right. gunfight is like, yeah. you don't know how you're going to react. And the kid holds himself. He survives, whatever. But I think at the end, he realizes, okay, I've seen both sides of the argument and i belong here and now i have an elevated status here because i come back to this small town as a gunslinger i'm not just seen as a farmer right so i can lead this town 
Yeah. So in essence, yeah. his his arc kind of comes to a fru- comes to fruition in coming back to the town. If he had become just a gunslinger, his issues would have never been resolved, which were the issues of anger he had towards gunslingers because of him being a peasant and being reliant on them to defend himself or to have to fight them in order to survive and have food in his town, which is what. Uh, Mufuni talks right. about in Seven Samurai, yeah, and so you have the same kind of speech uh, in both of them, right? Right. You know, when he's drunk and he's flipping out, and the you know he has that argument with Chris about it, you know, right? Yeah, that's actually a really good point. I hadn't thought about it quite that way. Well, is that his his test of manhood? Yeah, he needed to do this to mm-hmm. to solve his test of manhood. He couldn't just be a farmer. Yeah, he had to know that he could do this thing. Yeah, and now that he knows that he can do this thing, now he can go back. Right, as he can settle back. Yeah person yeah um and and he goes through a lot you know the the, the moment but a you have the great clap your hands scene so oh so, gosh so, so much like in seven samurai we got we're gonna test yeah these guys and it's gonna be obvious from the test whether or not they're good oh, and, yeah. and and uh yul burner does this thing where he goes okay clap your hands and then he draws his gun and and in the time that it takes to, to clap clap his hands and they do it it's great because they do a great jump cut yeah right on the moment of the clap which makes yul burner seem ridiculously fast yeah which uh, apparently he was not that fast. <laughs> um, uh, Horse says he had to slow down his clapping because Yule was so slow. Um, that's what he says. Uh, but um, and then the drunken scene where he comes back yeah. in, clap your hands, and he starts firing his gun right near Yule's head, and Yule's just standing. That's some courage. Yeah, you know. But he also knows, man. Yeah, because Yule knows that kid. He knows yeah. that kid. He might have even been that kid at some point in his life. Yeah. That desire you know and then you get older and you understand you know i look at my 20 year old self sometimes and i go yeah yeah and i see that sometimes in the shade of certain people and it's so funny to watch it now as you're older because you're like oh yeah i know that i yeah. know that baby yeah i've been there i've been yeah there. and yeah, that's what's so great about that scene yeah and and what's interesting about the way the movie presents it is that it it implies there's some level of gunfighter professionalism yes that that all these guys understand and when they do the big battle where they come back to town yeah you really see it. They do a really good job choreographing that action yeah. sequence to make Yul Brynner and Steve McQueen and all these guys look, man, these guys are good. Yeah. Because they just come into town and have to take on 30 people. Yeah. And win. Yeah. You know, it's impressive. Yeah. Uh, it's an impressive sequence. Well, also, Calvera is not prepared sure. for it. So in, when they initially win the first time, it's because Calvera is not prepared. Right. And then the betrayal, the Calvera wins, but then Calvera gets betrayed, he's caught with his pants down again. Yeah. And this time for good, yeah. you know? And so it's constantly the idea of surprise on both right. sides to, in order to survive, you know, in order to win. And I love that. I love that because it's believable. It would be, ha- it would happen. Well, this yeah. is one of the things in great action sequences. <laughs> People often think that in an action sequence, your job or in an action movie is to build up your hero, yeah. make your hero more awesome. Yeah. And to some degree, you do want to do that. You do want them. You want to have the James Coburn scene where you see how good he is with the knife. Yeah. But then, the more you build up your hero, you have to build up your bad guys even more. Yep. Because in order for you to have a satisfying action sequence, the the heroes must overcome something that's really difficult. Yeah. This is why like a Superman movie is really hard because the hero is so powerful yeah. that you've got to get bad guys that can conquer Superman. Right. Um, and then, so now you've built up your bad guys to be really powerful. Now you have to have your heroes do really, really cool stuff yeah. to defeat that bad guy. Yeah. Um, and some movies kind of fail at that moment. Is yep. that they? And, and this movie doesn't. No. The, the, you see from the Robert Vaughn going into that room and drawing his guns to to uh steve mcqueen getting shot and spinning and yeah. shooting and dragging himself off like you see them oh wow these guys are great and it's really fun to watch well this is why i take a little bit of of conflict not was umbrage or whatever the word is 
to push back about what you said about it being the last classic Western, because to me, there's plenty of anti-heroes in this film. And there's a deconstruction of the Western myth of being a gunslinger, mm. right? They have these conversations where, like you highlighted earlier, where they talk about like friends, none, you know, uh, yeah. life, none, yeah. family, none. They're telling that young kid, this is the life that you're, you want to have. This is the life that you want to go after. This crappy life. Look at the PTSD of Robert Vaughn. Sure. Look at the fact that Brad Dexter is just desperate to do do anything for gold look at your like they have that great sam seven samurai moment in in this movie as well at the end when chris and uh chris which is your brenner character and steve mcqueen look at each other and they're like well we survived again yeah you know and it's that great moment where they understand the their lot in life that they've chosen and there's no way back but they're not reverential figures yes they're amazing with the gun but their lives are empty you know, and that's, I think that's, this is the beginning. I would counter that this is the beginning of the anti Maybe that's it. Maybe this is the transition. Yeah. Because it's both <clears throat> rollicking and positive. It is. And good guys and bad guys. And you're seeing the, the Robert Vaughn. You're seeing, that's yeah. a really good point. Maybe, yeah. maybe that's a better way to look at it. Okay. One, one, thing, one thing that occurs to me, and it, it came up at high noon, yeah. is um, the West is almost always ending. Yeah, and, and, and I was thinking, because in high noon, civilization has started to come. The train has arrived, yeah. and the town has started to get civilized. Right. In this movie, we have at the beginning, Chris, uh, Steve McQueen, and Yul Brynner show up. Where are you coming from? Tombstone. Famous place yes. of gunslingers, right? And, and where's Steve McQueen coming from? Dodge. Yeah. The other Dodge famous City, place. Yeah. And they go, anything going on there? Nope. And the reason is, is because the West is ending. Yep. Is that we have to go across the border to Mexico right. to find the West. If you look at Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, that's a movie about the West is ending. Yeah. And, and I was thinking about this idea of the West. Unforgiven, the West, too. Yeah. Is that, yeah, perfect example. Yeah. Is that the West is fleeting. Yeah. And, and really, the, if you think of what is the classic era of the West, it's probably about from the end of the Civil War till maybe 1890. Yeah. So that's 25 years. And... And, and as soon as the train is coming, and the train is coming throughout that whole period, yeah. the West is immediately dying. Yeah. And it's interesting to think of that this moment in history that Americans hold somewhat, not sacred, but like special, is, is this very fleeting moment, this moment that is dying as soon as it is created. And it's this moment in which these people can exist on their own. They're making their own rules for society. There is no one to come save this village yeah. except these guys. Yeah. And these guys get to decide to risk their life or not. They're not drafted in an army. Yeah. They're not, there's no law telling them what they have to do. <laughs> They're in charge and get to decide what they do. Yeah. And that moment in time is going to be over. Yeah. And it's already over in Dodge and Tombstone. Even the town itself at the beginning, they said it used to be you could bury in, in Native American in Boot Hill, but yeah. not anymore. The town's starting to get civilized. Right. right. You know, this idea of civilization is this negative thing coming in. It's really interesting to me. Yeah. I mean, Ride the High Country, which is a Peck and Paul film with Randolph Scott you know, and Joe I've never McCray. seen it. I've oh, man. It. I can't recommend that film enough. It's such a good film. And it's two aging gunslingers, uh, you know, at the end of the West doing one last job to kind of stay alive and see what they can do next. And before, ever, tech, before the advent of technology and civilization comes in and makes them irrelevant, you know, and it's such an awesome film. Peck and Paul loves to do this. Peck and Paul loves to explore this genre and deconstruct it in that way. And so, oh, yeah, you know, he definitely does. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, one thing that just occurred to me, because I'm picturing all the cool moves with guns that you have in this movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I love anything where someone displays physical skills that took practice. Yeah. And so, you know, the great draws, the Colburn with the knife, all this stuff. And apparently, Eli Wallach uh, couldn't do any of this. He had enough trouble riding the horse. And that he had a look 
to see where his gun was yeah. while he was on the horse before he could draw it. Yeah. And Sturgis hated it. He's like, please don't look. You should be able to draw your gun without looking. Yeah. And he, Wallach couldn't do it. <laughs> but Wallach did. So so he shows up on the set and he's assigned his 35 Mexican bandits to ride yeah. horses. And, and Sturgis told the bandits, wake Wallach up every morning at seven and you guys go ride for an hour or a couple hours. So he every morning for the month that they were shooting, wow. Wallach is out riding with his his band of bandits yeah and they adopted him they like loved him as you said the latinos they they embraced eli wallach and he just he's like these were these were my bandits yeah. and he started to really care about them in yeah. a very method actory way and i was like that's awesome yeah the dos Equis guy also not mexican yeah <laughs> also a jew so there you go i'm telling you we're everywhere i know that's what i know i know yeah, yeah the, our swarthy features allow us to play a lot of different parts <laughs> Uh, can we? Is there anything about the score, the Elmer Bernstein score? Yes, absolutely. Score? I've been meaning to bring it up. Forever. Yeah, we should touch on that. Yeah. So, uh, Elmer Bernstein, great, great composer, and this was really his big break. Yeah, and this is he had done uh, some movies up to this point, and not surprisingly, he's a student of Aaron Copland. Oh, okay. The great American, kind of you know, even you think of what is what are the American styles of music, of yeah. jazz and blues and and rock and roll, but. Aaron Copland really invented a American style of classical music. Yeah. And there's no question that Elmer Bernstein is drawing from that for yeah. this score. This is one of the great scores of all time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Beautiful. It's so uplifting. And it, it's like you said, it's rollicking. It's fun. But it's it's hero music yeah. and it's majestic. And it takes you to that place. And it's one of the most recognizable scores ever made. Absolutely. Yeah. And if you, if you want to do a quick test to see how much heavy lifting the score is doing, yeah. there's the sequence where they leave town and they're going to ride off to Mexico and we're riding horses. And that's when you get the big Magnificent Seven score. Yeah. So here's the test. Watch it with the sound. Now turn the sound off and watch that sequence again. It is so slow. Wow. And that score is making it feel like something is happening when they're really just walking their horses. Yeah. Like you feel like they're galloping. Yeah. Because the score is so powerful. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a great score. Uh, and it's interesting, too. You have Elmer Bernstein after this. Uh, Sturgis's, uh, I don't think it's his next movie, maybe two movies from yeah. him, is The Great Escape. Oh, yeah. Which we're definitely going to do because yeah. I love me The Great Escape. That's a good film. Great score again from Elmer Bernstein. And then, and then Elmer Bernstein continues to score movies for the next 40 years. Yeah, I think he did West Side Story, too, with uh, Sondheim. No, that's what? Leonard. That's oh, Leonard Bernstein. Leonard. I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah, they're buddies. No relation. Wow, how yeah, funny. Yeah, Leonard Bernstein. Totally okay. totally different. Sorry, guy. And then he, uh, he does a movie, which I think we're going to do soon, which is he composes Animal House. Oh, wow. And has this whole career as, uh, because John Landis, who had grown up 
like was a family friend or something yeah. said, I want you to do this comedy. And Bernstein was like, why would I do this comedy? Yeah. It's not really, I do these big things. He said, no, because I want to have a score that's completely straight. And we'll, whenever we do Animal House, we'll talk about this. But, sounds good. But yeah, he has an amazing career as a composer. Yeah. And this one, even like ignoring the big Magnificent Seven theme, you have the theme for the, the Mexican festival. Yeah. Uh, it was which really is great. Really great. Mm-hmm. And is it really traditional Mexican music? No. Right. But like a lot of scoring, it has elements that make it feel like yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah. Really, really, really good score. Yeah. Um, final thoughts. Uh, I can't recommend this film enough. I think it leaves a very lasting legacy as one of the top 10 Westerns ever made, in my opinion. I think it might show up in a particular list on a particular show that I host as well. Uh, I think it's one of my favorite Westerns to go back to all the time whenever I watch it or it comes on TCM. I sit and watch at least a half an hour, an hour. I just love the film so much. Can't recommend it enough. And you're seeing actors doing fantastic work with different styles of acting. It's yeah. really important. And the, the, the pace of the film as a director, you can watch that and see how important it is. A pacing of a film, editing of the film, cutting of the film is so important to really heighten moments and scenes that lead to a climax and then come back down again and lead you up to another climax and come back down again. It's such a fantastic film to study and watch. Yeah, I, I, for me, I think for those of you who want to be filmmakers or interested in writing or directing or acting, I think it's a great movie to look at, uh, largely because of its efficiency. Yeah. Is that the screenplay is extremely tight. The actors, you've got a lot of characters. The more characters you have in the movie, the, often the more heavy lifting you have to do because you have to have exposition yeah. to find them, give them each their moment. And each of these characters with very little time really shines. And you yeah. can even think of it as like, here's a short little Robert Vaughn story. Here's a Steve McQueen story. Here's the Charles Bronson story. They're almost like short episodic stories in and of themselves. Yeah. And so to watch it, to break down both in terms of writing yeah. these things, script efficiency, and then casting, getting great actors to inhabit these roles, because you know a sign of a great casting is when you could not possibly imagine anybody else playing these parts. Yeah. It's great casting. And then think about the performances. Watch, just sit there and watch James Colburn. Yeah. Watch Robert Vaughn. Watch Steve McQueen. Watch Yul Brynner. Yeah. Watch Eli Wallach. They're all just eating up every moment they're on screen they're blowing the doors off those performances yeah. it's really it's really a, a textbook on how to do this right and i would give a shout out to the lesser actors who play the towns absolutely folks. they yeah. did such a great job really of good job really in, uh, getting into your heart and then like when they may have their hero moments it's really moving and powerful and also when they betray and turn on each other it's oh, very yeah. powerful as well that's such a fantastic that's part a of the point. film too yeah so we got uh coming up is the uh is the the remake and i hope it's good <laughs> i i really you know i really Me too. I, I i'm happy i like westerns yeah. this is a good template for a western yeah. i hope i hope they do the, some of the things that we've talked about which is don't try to imitate Make your own Western. Yeah. Use those themes. And, and uh, yeah, we'll yeah, look forward to see Im- how it goes. Don't imitate. Innovate. Yes. Don't imitate. Innovate. Yeah. All right. On that note, <laughs> please, we'd love to hear what you think of The Magnificent Seven. We'd also like to hear any of your suggestions. You can visit us on our Facebook page. That's at the Cinephiles. That's C-I-N-E dash files. And uh, you can reach me on Twitter at S.R. Morris. John, where can they reach you? 
You guys can always find me at the Roca says T H E R O C H A S A Y S. I see all the shows I'm co-hosting there and hosting like this one, or the shows I get to be a guest on. And also, please, uh, 5 p.m. every Wednesday, a new episode of the Top Ten Show on Collider Network on YouTube drops, where me and Matt Nose count down the top ten films or whatever film is coming out that week. We have a blast doing it. So it's a fantastic show. I I watch it every week. Thank you. And one more thing, uh, please review us on iTunes. It makes a huge difference. Apple has their crazy uh, algorithms which determine which placement you get on which pages and the number of five-star reviews makes a big difference so if you want more cinephiles please review us on itunes it's a big help all right uh that's it for this week we will see you next time on the cinephiles (laughs) 